Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 6, Africa's New Moscow, the tale of Nikolai Ashinov. On the coastline of the Horn of Africa, in what is today the Republic of Djibouti, was the abandoned fortress of Sagalo. Despite having been deserted by the Egyptians in the 1860s, it was in fairly good condition. Although one of the towers had collapsed, the walls and buildings were mostly intact, and certainly serviceable for human habitation. That was indeed the intention of the band of 150 Russians who stood outside its gates on the 16th of January, 1889. They were quite the ragtag gang. Locksmiths, ex-soldiers, carpenters, university dropouts, a black teenager from nearby Ethiopia, a few Odessa tramps, a smattering of priests and monks, a dentist, and a handful of wives and children. Leading them was Nikolai Ashinov, the morning sun glinting off the long daggers tucked into his belt, the sea wind blowing tufts of his coarse, shaggy ginger hair across his sweating brow. With pride he surveyed Sagalo. Here was the summation of some six years of undisguised ambition, the summation of lie upon lie upon lie, of deceit upon deceit upon deceit. Who hadn't he misled to get here? Journalists, governors, industrialists, diplomats, statesmen, even the Tsar himself. But here he finally was, ready to begin his life's work. No doubt his eyes moistened as an orthodox abbot performed the makeshift service and sprinkled holy water on all four walls of the fort. No doubt his heart swelled as the Russian flag was raised and his company shouted a mighty hurrah into the early morning air. New Moscow, as the fort was renamed, had been founded. Now the real labour could finally begin. It did not take long to make progress. Quickly readied were a barracks for the married men and their families, another for the single men, some quarters for Ashinov, his wife and the abbot, and a small room fitted up as a church. Some semblance of daily life began. Hunting parties to nearby woods and mountains brought antelope, rabbit and pheasant. Fishing in the nearby sea rendered a hefty bounty of fresh eels. Millet grew in some abundance nearby. Seeds for future orchards were planted. And each day Ashinov drilled those men capable of bearing arms. But soon difficulties began to rear their ugly heads. A trickle of settlers, small but constant, started to desert. Ashinov's military discipline rankled for those promised a plethora of plunder and adventure. And then there were the French. Less than two weeks into the enterprise, a French cruiser arrived, ordering the company to surrender their arms. Ashinov haughtily refused. He cannot have been too surprised by this immediate reaction. The entire point of his expedition was to establish a Russian toehold in an increasingly sensitive part of the world. The scramble for Africa amidst Europe's imperial powers 
was well and truly underway, each rushing to claim territory before any of its rivals had the opportunity. To the south, the Italians, latecomers to the game, were carving out coastal provinces from the ancient African empire of Ethiopia. To the north, the French and British had forts and ports on the Red Sea, thereby controlling access to the Suez Canal, the vital juncture for European maritime traffic, moving between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. The land which Ashinov was claiming in the name of Azar was recognised as a French area of influence. A few years later, in 1894, it was to become the colony of French Somaliland. In the thinking of Ashinov and his backers, Russia too deserved a piece of the African pie. After all, it too had need of a warm water station on the Indian Ocean to refuel ships heading to the Russian Far East. On the 30th of January, four French battleships arrayed themselves along the coast, demanding the Russian flag over New Moscow be lowered. Ashinov told them to do it themselves. He was probably, at this point, a little discomforted. Why were the French, a Russian ally, acting with such hostility? He probably had only a slight inkling of the diplomatic bomb his little foray into Africa had set off in Europe. The Italian and French governments had reacted with outrage, immediately registering their anger with Russian diplomats. Confronted with an international incident, the Russian government, immediately and without reservation, disowned Ashinov, telling the French they had the full right to remove the piratical group by any means they deemed necessary. So, on the 5th of February, the same four warships returned, a native of the area was sent to tell the Russians that they should leave immediately. If not, the most decisive measures would be taken. Arrogantly, Ashinov refused to even parley with the indigenous man. Let the French send officers if they wanted to talk. And so they waited. Ashinov ordered roast lamb and wine to be readied for his guests. His men were given an extra ration of vodka to share with the foreign sailors when they arrived. Meanwhile, the long grey guns of the battleships trained themselves on the fortress. How did all this come to pass? We need to begin this tale with our protagonist, Nikolai Ashinov. But this is easier said than done. Ashinov was an inveterate liar, especially where his own biography was concerned. Even the Russian Ministry of Internal Affairs had four different backstories for the man. His most recent and most thorough biographer, the Russian historian Andrei Lunochkin, suggests we begin with some rather obscure articles printed in the late 1880s by a former mayor of Zaritsyn, today known as Volgograd, but far more famous under its Soviet sobriquet, Stalingrad. The one-time mayor remembered the Ashinov family, as apparently did many in the sleepy river town. The father had once been a serf, an enslaved peasant living just north of Tsaritsyn. He had won his freedom and a very substantial amount of land by marrying off his daughter to his noble landowner. With his new riches 
Ashinov Sr. had sent his son Nikolai for a rather good education in the town, but he was subsequently expelled from secondary school for bad grades and worse behaviour. Nikolai was charged with gathering for local roughs to rob his younger schoolmates of food and money. And neither of the Ashinovs were gifted estate managers. Their lands were ultimately seized by creditors, leaving them with only a small island in the middle of the Volga. While of negligible value, the little isle was used by locals for fishing and other entertainments. This Nikolai Ashinov sought to stop, hiring two exiled Dagestani mountain men to repel anyone who landed without permission. This continued until 1880, when Nikolai, finally bored of Zavitsin, sold off his property and promptly vanished. He re-emerged three years later, in St. Petersburg, but now in a very much changed guise. He was no longer Nikolai Ashinov, peasant's son and local layabout, but Nikolai Ivanich, Caucasian Cossack extraordinaire. In the imperial capital, he began to tell anyone who would listen a tall tale. He was not from Russia itself, he claimed, but was instead the representative of a Cossack band that had long lived outside the borders of the empire, spread across Kurdistan, Turkish Armenia and the Persian shore of the Caspian Sea. His men, he related, were tired of living in foreign lands. They wanted to return to their long-lost motherland, for which they needed pastures. He suggested being given some territory in the northern Caucasus, where his group could render empty land prosperous and serve the Tsar's cause in the interminable wars with the Ottoman Turkish Empire just across the border. As loyal sons of the Orthodox Church, they were more than happy to fight the Muslim infidel, he declared. And as for farming, he said, emirates of his people had travelled far and wide to India and China, where they had learned to farm silk and grow tobacco. Initially, he kept the number of his people relatively small, a couple of thousand, maybe. But as he retold the story over the next few years, the figure jumped higher and higher, from a few thousand to ten thousand, from ten thousand to a quarter of a million. To understand Shinov's new image and the potential power of his story, we need to say a few words about the Cossacks. Originally bands of freewheeling horsemen raiding across the endless grasslands of the southern Russian and Central Asian steppe, they had formed quasi-piratical societies made up of a cavalry elite and peasants fleeing from the Russian core lands to the north. They had been both a boon and a curse to the empire. Most famously, the great Cossack leader Yermak and his band conquered the gates of Siberia in 1582, thus handing the Tsars a continent. Most infamously, the leaders of the greatest peasant revolts in Imperial Russia, Stenka Razin, Kondrat Bulavin and Yemlan Pugachev, had all been Cossacks. Rampaging in scenes of terror all over the Russian countryside. Over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries, the Russian state had slowly tamed the raw ferocity of the Cossacks, gradually abolishing their distinctive institutions and officials, and incorporating their cavalrymen 
into the regular army. These soldiers gained a fearsome reputation, both for their terrifying performance on the battlefield and for their violence when deployed as a supplementary police force. Ashinov did everything he could to fit the stereotypical image of a rough-hewn Cossack, dressed in splendidly exotic style in a short kaftan with long Caucasian daggers wedged into his belt. He deliberately spoke and wrote in crude, ungrammatical Russian, liberally scattering acronyms into his speech. At dinner, he behaved with affected uncouthness, grabbing food from other people's plates and grasping bewildered generals by the shoulders before making fun, publicly, of their boldness. In other words, Ashinov played upon Russian society's romanticization of the Cossacks as bold but brutal, simple but honest, violent but pious. Journalists and commentators constantly compared him to the Siberian conquistador, Yermak, while he delighted in comparing himself to the Cossack rebel, Razin. In St. Petersburg, however, he got almost nowhere. The few bureaucrats he spoke to immediately saw him as the chancer and scoundrel he was and sent him packing. But he soon found one sap who bought his lies hook, line and sinker. The well-connected military engineer Vasily Panayev, who became Ashinov's firmest friend. Using his social links, Panayev managed to get the supposed Cossack a letter from the head of the armies in the Caucasian region. Ashinov's Cossacks could settle in what is today Abkhazia, but without any of the special conditions that Ashinov had demanded. This was not sufficient, though. Ashinov needed finance. For this, he went to try his luck in Moscow. In the old capital, he got himself presented to one of Russia's most famous conservative journalists, Ivan Aksakov. Aksakov was very taken with Ashinov's disguise. Here was a real Russian, entirely uncorrupted by Western influence. Ashinov laid it on particularly thick with Aksakov, even pretending that he was wholly illiterate. Aksakov used his newspaper to print Ashinov's story word for word and to rustle up donations from anyone interested in this effort to further spread Russian influence in the Caucasus. So now Ashinov had a couple of important backers, some money and even a letter of permission from the most senior general in the Caucasus. But of course, he had no men. The army of a quarter of a million Cossacks loitering somewhere in the Middle East was entirely invented. So, what was an enterprising man to do? Telling Eksarkov he was heading to Kurdistan to gather his compatriots, Ashinov instead set out for Poltava province in modern-day Ukraine. Deceiving local officials into believing he was an envoy of the government, he went around a few villages, promising the peasants milk and honey. If they came with him, they would get money, they would get land, their debts would be forgiven, there would be no taxes, and they would be able to grow beautiful fruit orchards in the warm, temperate climate and its soft, fertile soils. Some hard-up peasants, about a hundred families or so, followed him. Even a phantasm of hope was better than the dark, despair-filled lives many of them lived. Arriving in Abkhazia, 
the peasants settled on the land that Ashinov had procured with his letter from the general. Now the mask fell and the scam was revealed. There was no money, no tax exemptions. Ashinov installed himself as the head of the village and used this position to control all communications in and out of the community. When the local government, worried about the settlers' well-being, sent flour and money to the village, Ashinov embezzled the cash and handed the flour out only to his most loyal supporters. And all the while, he sent letters to Aksarkov and Panayev, telling them bizarre tales of bringing Cossacks across the Caucasian mountains to their new home. Soon, though, the officials caught on. Sending an inspection to the village, they launched a criminal investigation into Shinov. Fearing arrest, he fled by boat to Moscow. Back with Aksarkov by the end of 1884, Ashinov continued to dissemble, telling the journalists that all would have worked out wonderfully were it not for foreign persecutors in the imperial administration. Poles, Germans, Armenians. The credulous publisher helped him bring this story to public attention in his newspaper. This were Ashinov two more vital allies in the world of journalism, the nationalist editors Mikhail Katkov and Alexei Suvorin. With Aksarkov, Katkov and Suvorin, Ashinov had access to the biggest newspapers in Russia, all of which were uncritically circulating his story. Doors started to open. Meetings with government ministers occurred, including breakfast with the Tsar's cousin, Grand Duke Vladimir. Indeed, Alexander III now began to hear of the scheme, although, to his credit, he reacted with distrust. Ashinov's ultimate aim was to get an audience with either the Tsar or his heir, the young Prince Nicholas. But, by September 1885, this had not happened. Frustrated, Ashinov unleashed a threat. If his entirely fictional Cossack army did not get satisfaction, they would go and serve a different sovereign, most probably the Ethiopian Emperor. This marked the end of the first crazy scheme to settle a non-existent Cossack army in the Caucasus and denoted the beginning of a second, to send a non-existent Cossack army to settle in Ethiopia. To sell it, Ashinov needed an even more ludicrous pack of lies. He did not disappoint. A British agent had approached him, Ashinov told Aksarkov, offering him £10,000 in exchange for a band of 5,000 men, who would be dispatched to raid Russian Central Asia. Of course, the scam artist claimed, he had no intention of betraying the Russian motherland, but maybe they could steal the British money and use it for some good. Aksarkov agreed and got in touch with his contacts in Russia's diplomatic service, most particularly the Russian consul in Cairo. A scheme fell into place. Ashinov would go to the British embassy in Istanbul and fool them into thinking he had agreed to their devious plot. And so the adventurer went to Istanbul. Turning up at the Russian embassy dressed like a monk to lessen suspicion, he brandished a bag of pounds sterling and a visiting card of Sir Henry Wolfe, the British ambassador. The deal, he alleged, had been done. Of course, there is not the slightest piece of evidence to corroborate this, especially as the money and calling card could have come from anywhere. The fact that Ashinov constantly increased the sum he had been offered 
from £10,000 to £20,000 to a million hardly makes his story credible. Ashinov was masterfully playing on the geopolitical anxieties of the time. For decades now, the British from their Indian colony and the Russians from their provinces bordering Central Asia had been eyeing each other, both afraid that the other would attempt to invade the luckless territories that lay between the two colossi. In the name of this fear, the British had led a bloody and failed invasion of Afghanistan in 1878, while the Russians had annexed much of Central Asia during the 1860s and 1870s. Using their overweening anxieties about perfidious Albion, Ashinov was able to make his Russian friends believe almost anything. So, what now? The reasonable thing would be to return to Russia. But of course, this is not what Ashinov did. Instead, he set sail south for Ethiopia. In letters sent back to the eagerly awaiting Russian press, Ashinov claimed he was leading the 5,000 Cossacks the British had supposedly bought to the court of the Ethiopian emperor. They would be settled there and create fertile ground for a Russo-Ethiopian alliance. Needless to say, this was all a fiction. Ashinov did indeed go to North Ethiopia, declaring himself an official representative of a Tsar. However, he had no papers, and so was refused permission to go further and meet the Emperor. He thus returned north to Russia in April 1886, but not empty-handed. The Ethiopian ruler, he claimed, had provided him with gifts to be lavished on the Tsar. Getting to St. Petersburg, the gifts turned out to be two Ethiopian teenagers, a boy called Avar and a girl named Maria. There was also an ostrich. The girl was sent to a convent to be cared for, while the boy was left in Ashinov's charge. As for the ostrich, the novelist Nikolai Leskov laconically tells us, it ended its long-suffering life in a barn on the Petersburg side of the river Neva. The longed-for audience with the Tsar was still not given. But Ashinov's journalist friends had done their work well. He was now famous throughout the upper crust of Russian society, being fated at some of the most exclusive salons in the capital. Notoriously, when attending dinners, he would refuse to start eating before everybody else. Not out of manners, but for fear the British were trying to poison him. The criminal investigation against Ashinov for embezzling money in Apazia was dropped. He also managed to get himself married to a rich heiress called Sophia, whose dowry amounted to almost 100,000 rubles, a colossal sum, and a large landed estate in her native province of Chernigov. She too was apparently an eager adventurer. If Ashinov is to be believed, and he is not, the two met when cruising along the Nile, with him saving her from a thief who had tried to abscond with her purse. Together, the newlyweds journeyed to Paris, where right-wing French journalists gave them a warm welcome. Anxious to cement relations with Russia and undermine Italian ambitions in Africa, once again Ashinov was telling this audience precisely what they wanted to hear. The pair ended their impromptu honeymoon in Istanbul, where Ashinov spent his time in the company of a Russian officer trying to foment revolt in Bulgaria, a crime for which he would be shot a few months later. 
Back in Russia, the ranks of Ashinov supporters grew ever larger. Although the deaths of the journalists Katkov and Aksarkov were certainly heavy blows, they were more than compensated for by two major gains. The first was Nikolai Baranov, a former Navy captain who had been disgraced for faking a naval victory during the Russo-Turkish War a decade earlier. His friendship with Alexander III, however, had led to his appointment as governor of Nizhny Novgorod. The second was Konstantin Pobedonozev, the chief bureaucrat in control of the Holy Synod, the Russian Orthodox Church's governing body. Effectively the minister of religion, he was very close to the emperor. Pobedonozev had served as the Tsar's tutor and was currently the tutor of the heir to the throne, the future Nicholas II. Of all the people who fell under Ashinov's spell, Pobedonozev is the most surprising. Known for his ascetic tastes, a clockwork routine and a near-complete lack of imagination, this pious and po-faced lawyer seems the last person on earth who would have been interested in crazed foreign adventures, more fit for the opium den than educated society. It seems most likely that he wanted to use Ashinov to obtain a closer relationship with Ethiopia's ancient Orthodox Church, which could then act as a channel for Russia's interests in Africa and elsewhere. Together, Boranov and Pobedonosev pressured Alexander III to take a step he had thus far refused to contemplate, to put faith in Ashinov's mendacious scheming. Finally, in early 1888, the Tsar authorised a reconnaissance mission to Ethiopia. A Russian vessel would take Ashinov and a small group of quote-unquote Cossacks to the Horn of Africa. The naval lieutenant in charge would scout out an appropriate place for a future Russian coal station, while Ashinov would disembark and head overland to Ethiopia to enter into negotiations, taking with him as tribute a few dozen modern rifles, a present the pressured Ethiopians would surely embrace. So, on the 24th of March, 1888, the Kostroma, a Russian steamboat, left the Black Seaport of Odessa on its secret mission, arriving at the Horn of Africa on the 7th of April. Ashinov's letters relate an adventure-filled joyride in a camel caravan, with his wife giving birth under bullet fire as the Cossacks fought back hordes of native bandits. Pretending to his correspondence to have handed over 20,000 rifles rather than just the box full provided, Ashinov proclaimed his success. The Ethiopian emperor had warmly declared his desire for an alliance with Russia, authorised Ashinov and his associates to found a settlement called New Moscow, and sent two monks to visit their co-religionists in the frigid north. When Ashinov and his wife returned, only one part of the tale proved to be true. They did indeed bring with them two monks. There is no proof that Ashinov ever visited the Ethiopian ruler. More likely, he simply stopped at a monastery and went no further. When Ashinov translated for the monks, they claimed that their emperor wanted a strategic alliance. However, when the young Ethiopian girl from the previous trip was brought out from her convent to offer translation, it emerged they simply wanted to forward warm greetings to the Tsar and the Russian church. In October 1888, Alexander III resolved on the next course of action. Another ship would be sent to the Horn, carrying once again Ashinov and a much larger collection of his Cossacks. 
On board would be boxes of rifles, swords and supplies to shore up the settlement of New Moscow in Ethiopia. But once again, Ashinov had a problem. He had no such Cossacks. So, making preparations for the trip in Odessa, the grifter simply rounded up whoever could be persuaded to come along. Unsurprisingly, most were down-and-outs and unfortunates, seeing the trip to Africa as a way of escaping despair, debt and the police. The only part of the group for which this was not true were the 40 or so Orthodox priests and monks, part of a spiritual mission from the Russian church. Nonetheless, even they were not free of suspicion. Allegations denounced the leader of this mission, Abbot Paisi, of having once been a member of a sect of castrates, whose practices of horrific self-mutilation were absolutely forbidden in the empire. While all these hurried preparations were in full swing, the truth was finally revealed. Some of the group that Ashinov had left in Africa in the spring had deserted to nearby French outposts. Sent to the Russian embassy in Istanbul, they told that there was no new Moscow and no agreement with the Ethiopian emperor. There was most probably no Cossack army. Now Ashinov's falsity could no longer be ignored or wished away. The Russian state quickly went into reverse, taking back the issued weapons and the government vessel proposed for the trip. All contact with Ashinov and Paisi was cut off. But Ashinov was not the kind of person to be held back by minor details like lacking a ship, weapons, money and men. Boarding a private ferry hauling pilgrims to the Holy Land, his band set forth. Deposited in Port Said in Egypt, they hired themselves room and board on an Austro-Hungarian passenger ship, although they did not depart before creating a complete ruckus. A Russian naval lieutenant on a docked vessel reported the scene to his superiors. Everything I saw in Port Said caused the most painful impression, since this expedition does us shame and disgrace. All this group is made up of ragamuffins, drinking and causing a dinner around the entire town. By day and late at night, all this band wanders down the streets in impossible costumes, dirty and torn from sleeping on the ground. Unfortunately, among them are many of spiritual rank, wandering around in torn cassocks. All of them are in a cheery and reckless mood. They shout and sing songs, day and night. No doubt the luckless residents of the port were happy to see them go, as they steamed through the Suez Canal and down the Red Sea, an Italian naval vessel began to tail them. Any secrecy had long been lost, especially since the gang had been particularly inclined to drunken blabbering whilst in Port Said. It is certain that the French, Italian and British governments were all aware of what was going on, with the Italian government in particular being in an uproar. When docking at the British-controlled harbour of Suakin, the English refused to even let the band briefly disembark to stretch their legs, keeping soldiers around the boat. Rather improbably, one of Ashinov's associates later disgorges in his memoirs that an Italian secret agent was discovered on board the vessel, covertly monitoring the group. So, now we return to the scene with which we opened the bright and blustery day of the 5th of February, 1889, 
with the Cossacks making dinner preparations and the French aiming their guns at New Moscow, formerly the fort of Sagallo. This tale has thus far been told in a humorous tone, as is largely fitting. It was a surreal and bizarre farce, one that involved an entirely improbable conman tricking some of the most luminous personalities of the day with stories composed of complete hot air. Batashinov's continent-spanning web of manipulation was about to come crashing down with the most tragic possible consequences. At three in the afternoon, the French admiral gave the order to open fire. For 15 minutes, the heavy cannons of the four battlecruisers roared, dropping flame onto the fort. The barrage only ceased when the Russian flag was lowered and a white one raised in its place. In New Moscow, concussed and dazed, they assessed for butcher's bill. Twenty-two were wounded, and one of Ashinov's men was dead. But this was not the worst of it. One of the first shells fired had landed a direct hit on the barracks in which the women and children lived. Five of them were dead, buried or blown up. These were Dalia Marchenko, Malia Martinova, the six-year-old Roman Martinov, the four-year-old Motrona Rupsova, and the two-year-old Stepan Rupsov. Gathered up by the French, the remaining would-be settlers were transported north. The French sailors and naval officers had no idea what to do with them. As the news circulated around journals sympathetic to Ashinov, the government in Paris was decidedly shamefaced its orders having led to the deaths of six innocents. In Petersburg, meanwhile, Alexander III was heard muttering to the Minister of Foreign Affairs that Tashinov had gotten what he deserved. Fearing the reaction of the press when they found out that the Russian state had simply abandoned these people to French bombardment, the government placed a ban on all news stories relating to the events at Sagalo. It was finally decided that the French would transfer the broken band to a Russian ship in the Suez Canal. Thence most of them would be sent to Odessa, while Ashinov, his wife, the abbot, and others identified as leaders would go to the Russian naval base in Sevastopol for interrogation. The punishments meted out were remarkably light. Most were simply sent back to their places of permanent residence. Abbot Paisi was sent to Georgia, where he was soon given a monastery to command. Ashinov's wife was sent back to her estate in Chernigov. Ashinov and the Ethiopian teenager Avar were dispatched to Saratov, since no one knew precisely where Ashinov originated from. In little under a year, he was allowed to join his wife in Chernigov. And yet still, still he was not done. In 1891, he went to Paris, apparently meeting with Italian diplomats, offering them his service in their Ethiopian colony of Eritrea. After this, he went to London for a few years to offer the British much the same, apparently no longer afraid that they wanted to poison him. Finally, in 1894, he went back to his manor in Chernigov, where he settled down with his wife. Our last report of him depicts a portly paterfamilias with five children, enjoying the life of a country gent, his penchant for danger satisfied by volunteering with a local fire service. 
the victims of Ashinov's schemes constitute a long list. The hundred families of Potava peasants persuaded to abandon their homes for a spurious fantasy of life in the Caucasus. Avar and Maria, the two Ethiopian children he somehow obtained, through kidnap, purchase or gift, we cannot know for certain, and who ended up in climes very distant and different from their homes. And the six people for whom New Moscow was the last thing they ever saw. And for what did they suffer and die? When it comes to Ashinov himself, his motives remain as mysterious as his early life. Other than the lies he printed and those he told to his interrogators in Sevastopol, he left no indication of what he really wanted. Did he hope to climb the social ladder, receive huge sums of money, grasp some shred of social respectability, live a life of carefree adventure, leave his mark in the history books, assume absolute power over a community, or some combination of all the above? We will never know. But he certainly did profit. Remember, he started his life a bankrupt high school dropout, but ended it a rich landowner married to an aristocratic heiress. Even if this is not what he hoped for, it is hard to say that he did not do well. Easier to answer is why so many were willing to believe him. The fact is, he only had a few die-hard believers, like the engineer Panayev and the journalist Aksarkov. For them, Arshinov carefully constructed around himself the mythos of the Cossack hero. Badly spoken, uneducated, even crude, but also direct, soulful, dashing and courageous. Men like Aksarkov had built their entire ideology around the notion that this was what real Russianness was. Russianness before it fell prey to the Western influence introduced in the early 18th century. Ashinov was seemingly the confirmation of all their most cherished beliefs, and so they latched onto him, with Panayev refusing to let go until the bitter end. For others like Governor Baranov, Konstantin Pobedonosev, most government ministers, and Alexander III himself, they identified Ashinov almost immediately as a charlatan. But in the hyper-competitive atmosphere of the great game, an ever-intensifying dance of global imperialism, might not his schemes be worth something? Had not the Cossack Yermak conquered a continent with little more than a band of men? Surely, if Russia could gain something as valuable as a station near the Red Sea, the vital archery needed by all the European powers to maintain their colonial possessions in the east, then perhaps Ashinov was worth some kind of support. As available land across the world was rapaciously gobbled up, the fear of disadvantage and exclusion reached new heights. At worst, Russia might be relegated to the second rank of imperial powers, ripe to be torn apart and exploited, much as was happening to Qing China and the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And it is worth remembering that the Russians were not the only ones susceptible to Ashinov. Two times he went to Paris, and during both he was fated by salons, journalists and even financiers. On the second occasion, just before the doomed trip to Segalo, one French industrialist, Jean-Robert de Constantin, was willing to provide Ashinov with 50,000 rifles, 50,000 cavalry carbines, 20 cannons 
and 5,000 sabres before the French government firmly told him to drop it. Like the Russians, the French saw their enemies, the Germans, the Italians and the British, grabbing as much as they could in Africa and elsewhere. Perhaps the swarthy Cossack could be a useful distraction, if nothing else. As it predictably proved, however, he was an embarrassment and a danger to all concerned. The Ashinov affair was a tragicomic farce, but only a minor one. As the century came to its conclusion, however, it was repeated on a much more serious scale. Germany, largely excluded from the great carve-up of the world, tried to grasp at some remaining morsels, each time provoking a horrendous crisis. The great alliance blocks were firming up, and the road to 1914 was being paved in Africa, Asia, and, most fatally, in the Balkans. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time. Thank you.